So number 49, Brother Trail has asked that we mark that, and certainly we're happy to do that. And we'll sing that a bit later in the service this morning. How delightful it is, as we mentioned already. I think Brother Ted did that as he made the announcements of the opportunity that's ours. In thanksgiving for the health that each of us enjoy today, the ability that we've been able to have to come together on this Lord's Day morning that our Father in Heaven has made. This morning, as we come together to an opportunity in worship, to assemble on the first day of the week, one of the thoughts expressed a bit earlier was taken from verse 15 of 2 Timothy chapter 2. Study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. We always have the desire, and a very earnest one at that, to simply during this part of the service to rightly divide portions of the Word of God, apply its marvelous and sacred precepts to our life so that we can live more pleasingly, more acceptably in the eyes of the great heaven, Heavenly Father. As we're thankful for all of that today, we certainly considered last Lord's Day morning a lesson that had to do with daily decisions that we often make. The title of that lesson was Daily Decisions in Appearance. And each of us recognize that in the morning and at various other times of the day, we make decisions on what apparel we shall wear, the way in which we shall present ourselves before others, and we learn during the course of that particular lesson that many things in the Scriptures remind us of the responsibility to choose our clothing wisely, to make those decisions that would brand us as those striving to appear pleasing before our Savior in heaven. Today, as we consider another lesson, though, along that line, might I invite us to notice that there are many other decisions that we each are called upon to make on a daily basis, a set of decisions that often appear to be very challenging because of the way in which the world presents these topics and because of the way that these things are shown to us by those around us. Today, as we give some thought to the matter of social drinking, that characteristic involving alcohol in one form or another and the consumption of it, those are very good questions. From time to time, our youngsters honestly ask, what does the Bible say about this? Sometimes those of us who are older are still faced with decisions and claims by those about us at the workplace or otherwise. Our goal today is merely to ask, what does the Word of God say about it? Our interest must ever be, mustn't it? Not what I feel or not what you think, but what does the Word of God testify and what does it declare relative to these matters? For it is indeed this book that shall serve as our judge in the sense of those famous words of John twelve forty eight: He that rejecteth me and receiveth not my word hath one that judgeth him. The word that I have spoken, Jesus said, the same shall judge him in the last day. As we today, for the next few moments, lift up the sacred scriptures concerning these matters, let's begin our lesson by giving some thought to some observations. Observations that in some ways will not be terribly surprising, but on the other hand, at times they do seem a bit shocking. The cultural aspect of social drinking is certainly a notable matter. We each appreciate that from it seems one of the earliest dawns of the human family. There has been great interest in and pursuit of these things that you and I consider to be alcohol. Man learned how to make it from a rather early stage, and it has continued throughout the millennia of time. Two years ago, the year 2010, a Gallup poll presented the following interesting piece of information. 
when Americans were surveyed relative to social drinking, 67% of them said that they fully upholded it and in fact had engaged in it themselves. That's two out of every three. You'll also notice that in that same poll, there was a question involving what the favorite social alcoholic beverage was, and although wine was near the top of the list, beer was still number one. So whether it be beer and wine, we appreciate that these were at the head of the list and that a certainly well over a half of the population, those polled at least, said that they fully appreciate the desire and that they had imbibed in it themselves. Doesn't that paint an interesting appreciation as we give thought to the millions upon millions of gallons of this produced every year by various and sundry businesses around the world? There are those who distribute it. There are, of course, uh, resellers who put it in markets. It is a rather notable industry, isn't it? When you and I give thought, though, to what the Word of God says about it, there might be one other thing that would come before us at this moment. Among that 67% that we noted, might we be quick to say that there are many in our world who claim to have a strong connection to the things of God. They perhaps even claim a strong connection to Christianity, and yet they too uphold the right, and even themselves will drink social, uh, engage in social drinking. In fact, another question on that poll might be of interest at this point. Of those 67% who had said that they drank... You might note that 64% of that number said they attend church services at least monthly, if not weekly. 54% of that 67% said they attend weekly. It's clear then that for these individuals, the thought of attending church services really has no direct bearing one way or the other upon their social drinking. The church apparently doesn't stand in the way of it. Or if it does, they in fact neglect what teaching that involves. It should be of interest to us today that we know there are many. Maybe you work with individuals who perhaps attend some religious services and yet they will openly confess to you that it's fine to drink, to do so in any reasonable amount. I would ask this morning as we give some thought to these matters, might we again simply ask, what does the Word of God say about these things? We live in a world, of course, where this will continue to be a matter of great interest, isn't it? Our children are going to face it. You and I as adults will face it. The church will face it. It's something we need to be ready with book, chapter, and verse to help us address the questions asked of us and to speak to them in ways like this. As we begin to think about that, might I invite you to turn with me to a warning issued within the pages of the Old Testament. Even though we shall not devote much time to consideration of Old Testament, nonetheless this warning from Solomon seems so appropriate. In Proverbs chapter 20 verse 1, the sacred writer in the days of the ancient old, he simply made this statement, that wine is a mocker, strong drink is raging, and whoever is deceived thereby is not wise. Interesting, isn't it, that there was the statement that those that are deceived by this, alcohol, he said, is involved in deception. This issue in alcohol is involved in one that incorporates deceiving. And he went on to say that those who are deceived by it are not wise. 
They aren't acting clearly, openly, with the characteristic of mental reason that's been given to them. They have not acted wisely. You'll notice, though, as that verse began, two words were employed. Wine is a mocker, and strong drink is raging. It might be of interest to ask, what do those words convey? What thoughts go along with them? You might notice here that word mocker, as it occurs in various and sundry places in the Old Testament, it frequently involves that which is abominable. That is to say, it is an abomination. And even in other places, it's that which is to be avoided, that which is a rebuker, that namely that which is not a positive thing in that regard. Finally, that which is a scorner. And here the inspired writer said that one strong drink is this. Doesn't that suggest to us that things relating to it must be looked upon with great care because again, it deceives those in our world often will make various claims about things related to this. You might remember a few years ago when the decision by way of referendum was made. One of those strong claims was if we will allow alcohol in our midst, it'll make our schools better, it'll make our economy better, it will just make everything better. Has it happened? Can we really say that it has happened in the way that was promised? There's not a single doubt, I suppose, in any of our minds that that was merely a cover. It was a good deceptive one. We now have alcohol in our midst, and we have so with full legislation of government. It deceives, doesn't it? But not just on a grand level like that. It can deceive on a personal level. You'll notice another word, though, that was in that text, the word brawler. That word from the Hebrew means to stir, it means to be boisterous, to be turbulent, to murmur and to growl. It's clear that what is associated with this could stir up things. It can lead to excitement in the sense of causing boisterousness, that is loudness, great speaking in terms of things that are not quiet and tranquil and serene. We have each, in fact, witnessed circumstances like that. Ask the police department when they get calls, where do they frequently have to go? They get calls about the boisterous and the loudness associated with those who've drunken too much and who have become inebriated in that fashion and way. We notice that alcohol, the Old Testament warned us, was going to be able to do this. As you give thought to all those matters related to it, many other passages in the Old Testament might well be listed and used for great discussion. Time this morning would long since fail us to look at all those verses. But it is interesting in Habakkuk 2.15 that a warning, another one was issued, Woe unto him that giveth his neighbor drink, that putteth a bottle to his mouth. And when we give thought to a comment and an inspired statement like that, again, it involved a woe, W-O-E, meaning, again, that it was not something positive, something to be encouraged, something to be commended, but rather a woe was pronounced upon those who in fact would encourage the imbibing of that alcohol by others. All of that hastens us, I suppose, to the New Testament. We understand that we live beneath that perfect law of liberty today, James 1.25. We live beneath that wonderful and majestic law of Christ mentioned in Galatians 6 verse 2. And as we turn through the pages from Matthew 1 to Revelation 22... 
we're reminded time and again that the Word of God answers and addresses the most practical and the most urgent needs in all of our lives. We must appreciate that God's Word does have answers for us and that we can always in freeness and in comfort turn to it to find what those answers are. As we give appreciation to some of the statements found in the Word of God about it, we know that there's a frequent occurrence of this word drunkenness. And in fact, it occurs without any misunderstanding at all in many passages where there is notable condemnation of it. We might well begin by looking at just a few of these. As we begin in Luke 21, 34, this was from the very lips of our Savior. We recall that as He was making His way toward His great sacrifice at the cross, in verse 34 of Luke 21, He even made comment about warning those of His day so that they could clearly be aware of the need to be watchful. We might be more familiar with Matthew's version of that when he urged them, No one knows the day or the hour when the Son of Man's coming, so you must always watch, be ready, always live in preparation. But it was in Luke's version of that that he made the interesting comment, So that you will not be overcharged with surfeiting and with drunkenness. Now, there are two words that the Lord used. One was drunkenness, and He clearly made a statement of the condemnation that goes with it. And certainly we should not then have any desire to stand drunken before our Master. There's also that word surfeiting. That word surfeiting, as it appears there, may not be the most familiar term to us, but it means to intake wine to excess. It's clear, isn't it, our Savior placed a note of condemnation upon the excessive intake of alcoholic beverage. But that was only one passage of many others that might be listed. You can also notice in 1 Corinthians 6, verses 9 and 10, that the inspired writer on this occasion made this statement about the Corinthians. He began it with a very notable question. Know ye not that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? And immediately... There was a statement that you folks in Corinth know this, right? The unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. But then Paul went on to make an inspired listing of ten particular sins that would fall under that condemnation. Everything from fornication to effeminacy to the characteristic of murder and included in that list is drunkenness. It's easy to see that the New Testament then places a condemnation uh, one more time upon this matter of drunkenness. We could also add to that list the works of the flesh in Galatians 5.21. Again, by inspiration, this listing in which various and sundry things are mentioned, and these are not pleasing to God. And among that list is again drunkenness. In fairness to all these matters, it's easy to see that wine in excess is that which the New Testament very much looks upon with frown. In 1 Peter 4 verse 3, in fact, it's exactly stated that way, excess of wine. All of that points a rather grand and notable picture, doesn't it? The Bible condemns drunkenness. But then someone is quick to ask, what constitutes drunkenness? If I drink ten beers, okay... What if I have two? What if I have one? What if I have half of one? 
Where does one draw the line and what is it that constitutes drunkenness? That's a very fair question. And it's a question that no doubt each of us would have a degree of interest in because again, our youngsters may be tempted as they listen to their friends and they would like to know our thoughts and even more carefully, what does the Bible teach about matters like these? It is for those matters that just as surely as we discuss it in that way, might we take and build upon that the following set of thoughts. It's certainly a strong temptation in our world today to import into the various words in Scripture the thoughts that go with them in our common language. For example, it is not at all uncommon when an individual uses the word wine today, they mean something that's intoxicating, for that's the most common way we use it. It's that same reason that many will then read the New Testament that way, that every place where this word wine occurs, to them it thus comes to mean something that's intoxicating. But we must remember the Greek doesn't demand that. And there was just one word for that fruit of the vine, and sometimes the word might be intoxicating, but that same Greek word might be used other places in which it's not so. We must, of course, allow the context and other passages to help us understand. But that same kind of thinking can also be done in other ways. Today, we know when the word drunkenness is used, we think about this complete and total inebriation. And it's easy to then read that back into the Scriptures and think that's the only thing it meant then. Are we sure of that? What does the Bible define drunkenness to be? Is it that one that's had a full 10 or 12 beers or is it somewhat less? I would invite you to look with me as we consider some more verses to help us understand more clearly and to think more easily about the nature of these matters. First of all, might we appreciate a premise, a set of thoughts that is of great aid to us in this matter. We understand that alcohol is a drug. There really is no question about that from anyone that I know of. It is a drug. It, in fact, operates on the mind and the body of, the, of a human being in the same way that a variety of other, of other drugs do. It does this in a way that, of course, the human family has come in many ways to prefer and to like. They like the way it makes them feel. They like the way it puts them at ease of mind and spirit. They like the way that it allows them to be jovial and jolly. And as they prefer and enjoy that, it, of course, behaves in that way that brings to it the issues that we think of in this way. It thus impairs both the activity of the mind and the body in the same way that's understood that drugs, in fact, do. Isn't it interesting that we understand that these kinds of things, of course, have a gradual set of impacts. I've tried to highlight that about the middle of that screen this way. We understand that with regard to any drug, the more of it that one takes, the more pronounced its effects and its observable considerations are. It's true that there are many aspects of life that are that way, aren't there? When you and I think about it from that way, then might we give thought to what that says about this particular drug that is of our interest this morning. This drug, of course, that appears in alcohol, especially in light of the commandments of the New Testament. The Bible on several occasions commands various individuals to be sober. 
one more time. We are accustomed to thinking today about that word in a very specific meaning. Look at the way the New Testament commands it. Might we begin that by saying, elders are commanded to be sober. You'll find that commandment in 1 Thessalonians or 1 Timothy 3, verse number 2. It's also true that the wives of deacons are commanded to be sober. It's also true that young men and young women are commanded to be sober. And it's also true that Christians in general are commanded to be sober. I say all of that to say that this commandment for sobriety seems to come to all of us. Elders all the way down to just young boys and girls that are nonetheless members of the Lord's body. Soberness. But when you note the word sober, certainly that idea, the Greek word has within it, that which is of self-control and that which is of temperance. Certainly that's to be understood. We would expect an elder to be in control of his emotions, to be in control of his activities. We would also come to expect our youngsters that even though the pressures might be great, that they too would learn to control themselves so that they could always be that example of rightness and goodness. Those issues and those definitions, though, lead us in the following direction. That word seems to connote a number of additional things along with it. I have used or presented to you for your consideration these particular Greek lexicon statements and results. I've just selected a few due to the space on the slide. The Freiburg lexicon, the Greek lexicon, presents that word this way, to be clear-headed, to be free from every form of mental and spiritual excess and confusion. May I ask, what is it that alcohol specifically does? Even in the smallest amount, it does not make one clear-headed. It, in fact, its whole purpose is to do just the opposite. Furthermore, might we notice the Liddell Scott lexicon specifically says it's to drink no wine. Beyond that, one could speak about the young concordance and lexicography. And one could also mention vines in particular. In fact, vine specifically defines it like this, to be free from the influence of intoxicants. Might we then ask, this word sober that's attached to so many individuals, from elders to the wives of deacons to Christians in general, and yet the command is to be sober. If we then ask, in what way would that relate to alcoholic beverage, what might the fair conclusion be? Let's look a bit further. We also notice that there's a specific commandment that's highlighted for us in Ephesians 5 verse 18. As you notice the statement from the inspired writer on that occasion, to this point we've simply made a conclusion about the character of being sober and how that, in order to do so, we need to be as clear-headed as possible, that we need to be of sound judgment as possible, that we need to be of mental capacity such that that is in no way hindered or in any way lessened or reduced. Paul to the Ephesians had this to say to them in chapter 5. Specifically he said, And be not drunk with wine, wherein is excess, but be filled with the Spirit. The interesting conclusion as we read that again seems so clear, doesn't it? And many would be quick to say, well there it is, it's just so long as excess is not involved. However, as we look with some care, 
You might notice that other translations will render the word excess very differently. In fact, it's rendered riot in the American Standard Translation. But even that very verb that is translated drunk, and of course the prepositional phrase with wine, perhaps challenges us to think about some of these points. First of all, the verb there is a second person verb. And thus, it's not just appropriate to one person, but yea, to the fullness of all who are addressed. It is imperative in its thrust, meaning that there's a note of urgency behind it. This is not an optional issue, and it is not something to be looked upon with lightness. Finally, we notice it's passive in character, meaning it's something you have to do for yourself. You, no one can do it for you, and you can't do it for anyone else. You must do it for your own decision and your own nature of dedication. What then is the thrust and meaning? The word means, and I've placed it there at the bottom for our consideration, to be drunk, to become drunk, to become intoxicated, to begin to be softened, taken from four different various lexicons. I might invite each of us to notice what is being described in any of these presentations. Is it not a characteristic of movement toward a final goal? It's not just the final goal itself that's addressed in any of these cases. In much the same way that a lot of other words in our English language work much like that. For instance, when we think about the word sleepy, does one suddenly become overwhelmingly engrossed in sleep? Or is sleep a process in which one perhaps moves from a state of tiredness in increasing gradual steps ultimately to sleep? It seems as if that word much like weary, tired, sleep, all of a host of others act in a way similar to this one. And isn't it interesting that Paul, by inspiration, used a word that identified this process to completion from its earliest stages onward. It challenges us, doesn't it, to think then that the Word of God has said something about this. As you look at the way that's presented... Peter seems to have done a very similar thing in 1 Peter chapter 4. Might I invite you to look at simply verse, verses 3 and 4 of that chapter. Again, it's 1 Peter chapter 4, beginning in verse number 3. When Peter wrote that particular set of statements, of course, those that were being addressed were individuals who had come out of a former state of life. In that state of life, they were recognized as distinct from or separate from the commandments of God, but thankfully, Paul or Peter had some very notable commendation statements to them. But as he describes some of that former lifestyle, this is the way he puts it. For the time past of our life, you'll notice that he even included himself in a portion of this, the time past of our life may suffice us to have wrought the will of the Gentiles. A way of life, a set of activities, a walk, if you will, and then he becomes more specific. When we walked in lasciviousness, that word lasciviousness, again, a bit of an unusual word in our modern language, but certainly not to the New Testament, as it describes these things that were unwholesome, these things that were not good, these things that were based upon lust. But then he says, lusts, and then excess of wine. And clearly, we then have a realization that this wine, when taken to excess, is certainly something that in those former days, Peter said, wasn't good. And now we don't walk in that way anymore. 
But Peter's list goes on to say this. There is then the word revelings. Again, near the close of verse number 3. That word revelings is a word that appears in this passage. And the very next one as well will have something to say along with it. That word banquetings. I've tried to define them for you again using resources that I found available to me. We noticed the excess of wine was a rather easy thing to appreciate and it had to do with bubbling over with wine. Certainly there were those in that day, just as there are today, who drank to great, great quantity and amount. But we noticed these other two words seemed to say something different or at least something in addition. The word banquetings means simply drinking or drinking party. That would perhaps bring to our mind the thought of this individual who just in a matter of desire for relaxation has an engagement or a small amount in which he or she drinks. That would seem to be a fit identical with a definition like this one. But then there's that word revelings that means feasts and drinking parties that go late into the evening. These seem to be more notable excursions and more notable examples of the same. We might again simply ask ourselves in fairness, what then does the Bible say about these matters? We have certainly learned that drunkenness in its fullness and in every character related to it was a condemned thing. But it seems we've learned drunkenness is certainly involved more than what our usual English American word of this day seems to present it. Abstain from all appearance of evil. That statement of 1 Thessalonians 5 verse 22 that Brother Jeremy read for us earlier today. What good can we appreciate that comes forth from this case of dulling the senses? Dulling the body and mind in one way or another. What good comes out of that? Are we better able to make decisions on what's godly and what's not? Are we better able to make careful choices on the right and proper way to stand justified before God? Surely alcohol in no way assists in those kind of decisions. And isn't it still true that who is wise and he shall understand these things, prudent and he shall know them, for the way of the Lord is right. The just shall walk in them, but the transgressor shall fall therein. It might be then in conclusion that we can say a few things about our study of these matters this morning, not the least of which would be this one. We still know that this is a very prevalent and prominent matter that we will continue to face, no doubt, until the end of the world comes. There is such a great interest in society at large in pursuing it, encouraging it, involving themselves in it. This morning, as we've seen, drunkenness, as the Bible tells us, is that which is painted in such a dark picture. Along with things like murder, it is condemned openly. But we've learned the Bible defines that drunkenness to involve this social consumption as well. For when we do these, we are in fact not of that definition of soberness that Paul has used. And we've also seen in it that even Peter's description in 1 Peter 4 has shown us that be it revelings, be it banquetings, being excess of wine, all of these things, those former days, Peter said, we don't live in them anymore. Today, as we strive to be wholesome individuals that set a noble example to those about us, and at times we will be challenged by those who will argue 
and try to present, well, there's nothing wrong with that. God made it. Shouldn't He allow us to drink it? Man makes alcohol. It is He who, by the virtue of brewing, by the production of all the complexity that goes with it, it's man that makes it. And it's man, of course, that takes it in. And may we desire to see that God would have us to be more noble examples of righteousness than, in fact, that would, would make before us. The gospel call of invitation challenges us to see that when we repent of our sins and we strive to come before Him, if alcohol has been a part of our life, that must be left behind. In fact, it must be left in the far distant past. For now, we serve not the God of alcohol, but the God of our Savior. And the God of the one who would wish us to be noble, to be upstanding and right before Him, and to be sober in all the regards of our life. If today there might be one or more in the audience who, for reasons like this or otherwise, would wish to make a public statement to put your Savior on in baptism, we'd be more than delighted to assist you in that way today. Realize the gospel plan of salvation that is set before all of us is still the same. We must believe Jesus with all of our heart to be the Son of God. We must repent of our sins. We must confess His great name as a Son of God and to be baptized. In that act of baptism, we come in contact with His saving blood. His blood will wash our sins away from us and allow us to stand whole and a member of His precious body. Once we become a member of that body, the challenge and charge is to remain faithful until death. If we stumble, if we come to the point of engaging in things of a public character and variety, for which others are aware that we've made those kind of mistakes. Jesus still loves us. And He wants us to come back with a tender and humble heart to that opening statement of dedication to Him. He's promised upon our repentance and our confession that He'll forgive those sins and allow us to be whole and right in His sight. This morning, if we could be of assistance to any individual, it'd be our challenge and it would be our desire to assist you in the ways that we can. As we draw this lesson to its conclusion today, may we each be able to proceed forward and onward in our day-to-day -day life in a way that we could set before others the example of propriety and the example of Christianity as it relates to even something like the daily decisions of social drinking. And if we could be of assistance to you today, would you not let that be known if you would while together we stand together and while we sing.